peoples of the Worldwide Federated Internet. What's good? If you want to be humbled, (laughs) if you ever want to really be humbled, go into a particular book in the Bible, assuming that you know quite a bit about this book, that you know quite a bit about all the doctrinal things covered. And the more you think you know, the more you figure out that you don't know. Well, at least me. Maybe I'm just a little slow. But anyway, John chapter one, verse 25. Let's get into this. All right. So uh, this is where we left off last time. Uh, We actually left off in verse 24. So I'm picking up in verse 25. And they asked him and said unto him, why baptizest thou then if thou be not that Christ nor Elias, neither that prophet. And so when I read that, I began to ask myself, what exactly did the Pharisees understand about baptism? And the reason I said that to myself, and I don't necessarily have the answer to this question at this moment. Um, they mentioned baptism as though they knew exactly what it was and they knew its exact purpose. So what did the Old Testament cover concerning baptism? I think there's many more things in the Old Testament covered than we give credit. Now, some of you smart people out there might be thinking to yourself, what? You don't know the answer to this. I have the answer. Well, you're a lot smarter than me. I can admit when I don't know something and I don't know. And I don't know how much they knew about baptism and how much they didn't know about baptism. That Greek word used there is baptizo. It means to dip uh, repeatedly, to immerse, to submerge of vessels sunk. And again, I don't know what they did or didn't understand about baptism, but clearly there was something concerning baptism that they did understand because they brought it up. They wanted to know, well, if you're not that that prophet and you're not Elias, then why are you baptizing? What's going on? So clearly they understood that this one to come, this one prophesied of was going to baptize. Now, what baptism was that? Let's get into that. Verse uh, 26 through 28. John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not, He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bathbara beyond Jordan, where John was baptized. And now in one of the other gospels, it gives some further detail on this. If, um, 
I'll go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Uh, let me get there. Mark 1, 7 and 8. Uh, and preach, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, I did a full uh, video on baptism for those who believe that water baptism is the means of salvation. That is, that's not biblical. And that's not what the Bible teaches. But I submit to you this question, if, if that's the thought that you hold. Now, there's two baptisms mentioned here. Now, we know in the Bible this happens many times. There'll be something that will be given that's a symbolism of the actual thing. For instance, animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice saved no one. Animal sacrifice eliminated no sin. But there is a sacrifice that did eliminate sin. And that was the sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ offered on the cross, offering himself for the sin of the whole world. Now, if we were to look into the Bible and look into the scripture, and I were to ask you which one of these sacrifices is required for salvation, it would be a clear answer. It is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. The animal sacrifice was a mere picture of what was to come. I would ask you that same question concerning these two baptisms mentioned. Which one is is required for salvation is it this water baptism or the baptism of the holy spirit and if you don't understand what happens to a person when they get saved they are indwelled with the holy spirit so again like i said i did a whole video on that i won't really get on that too much but i just at least wanted to touch on that right here and verse 29 the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto uh, coming unto him and saith, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. When I read verses like this, again, I try not to make the Bible say something it doesn't say or try to, you know, inject things in the Bible that are not there. But what I ask myself and I would ask you is. What takes away the sin of the world? Think about that. John said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. If you hold a viewpoint that you need works to take away sin, that you need a good life to take away sin, that you need some good deed to take away sin. then that runs contrary to what was just said right here. Very clear. Uh, let's go to verse, uh, where is we at? Where's on verse 27? Let's go to verse or verse 29, verse 30, um, to 33. This is he of whom I said after me cometh a man, which is preferred before me for he was before me and I knew him not but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, 
am I come baptizing with water? And John bare record, saying, I saw a spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode on him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the spirit descending and remaining, of him the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. When I think about this, I think to myself, what did this look like? I know I know what we have described, right? The Bible says that the spirit of God descended from heaven like a dove. But what did this actually look like? This is what was used to describe what was happening. But I wonder what this was like to see with your own eyes. Was it a bright light? Was it was it glorious? Was it graceful? Is is that why the image of a dove was used? I don't know. But I do wonder. Uh, verse 35. Again, the next day after John. Uh, mm, oh, yeah, I forgot. Verse 34. I almost skipped over this. And I saw and bear record that this is the son of God. Now, this is something I thought to myself and something that I'm another one of those things that I'm kind of looking into a little more deeply behind the scenes. We see things like this. We have we have the Bible. These things have been recorded. So I don't think we think about these things too much. But what exactly did it mean for the Lord Jesus Christ to be referred to as the son of God? Now, I looked into some things, watched a few videos where some uh, some scholars gave some commentary on what that meant exactly at this time for him to be referred to as the son of God. And they gave very interesting points, very believable points. Um, I believe we're biblically sound. I don't necessarily want to expound on that just, you know, right at this point. But I think it's, it's interesting that clearly this meant something and clearly this would carry a connotation that the people of the time would understand because this was this was something that was explicitly expressed and i saw and bear record this is the son of god now many things can be said a son is an heir right a son is a, an heir to uh whatever majesty and and whatever things is 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 uh comes from a father right if a father is a king he has a he has a son who's an heir he gets everything that the father had the throne everything the keys to the kingdom is that the connotation that's carried here uh there's one scholar that said uh brought up the the sons of God being mentioned in the book of Genesis and in the book of Job and how that was sparsely used. You didn't really hear it much. And he said that the sons of God were angels or created beings, uh, both in the book of Genesis and, a, and in a book of Job. And this would have been a a a created being. There, there's a lot of, you know, nuances in the argument. I can't really express it like, you know, this gentleman expressed I'm not saying he's right. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm saying at this point, I don't know. But the one thing I do know is there was a significance in 
the Lord Jesus Christ being referred to as the son of God. Now, again, I am not afraid to admit when I don't necessarily have a viewpoint on something or I don't really know. In the past, I would come across verses like this and I would jump to that position of defense. Like I have to have an answer. I have to know. I always like to stress with people. If you don't know, there's nothing wrong with saying, look, I don't have a concrete answer. Better for you to do that than to say something that is completely unbiblical and unsound. I would rather do. I would much rather say, I don't care how uh, ignorant, how dumb, how stupid it makes me look. I'm not super intelligent. So that, that, that doesn't bother me. Doesn't bother me for people to go. Yeah, this dude, we really doesn't know. No, I don't. And I'm cool with that. I'd rather not know and say something false. Uh, I know that was kind of a long, long tirade, kind of a tangent. Verse uh, 35 through 36. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, when I read that, I thought again, why are, why are certain things mentioned, right? Like John said, behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What, what did that lamb typically represent, right? It was the animal sacrifice given for sin. This probably should have been a clue to the listeners at this point. What exactly the Lord Jesus Christ came to do, because many people thought at this point that the Lord Jesus Christ came to usher in this uh, God's kingdom on earth, like an earthly kingdom, like he came to throw down the government to get rid of Caesar, to get rid of the Romans and to bring in God's government. That That's what a lot of people thought. But I think if they would have listened to what John said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I think had they gave, I think had they given a little tighter, more keen ear to what he was saying, the, the, the crucifixion would not have shocked so many. I think they would have understood this is exactly what he came for. Verse 37 through 39 and the two disciples heard him speak uh, and they followed Jesus. So the, there was two disciples with John. They heard uh, they heard Jesus speak and they followed him. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, what seek ye? That's interesting because, of course, he knows. But why did he ask? Then uh, they said unto him, Rabbi, which is saying, uh, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was the tenth hour. So they wanted to see where he stayed. He said, All right, come. Come check it out. They saw it was late, so they stayed. One of the two. Now imagine, I would imagine that night there was some probably some deep conversation going on, and there was probably some things revealed to them by the Lord Jesus Christ that is not necessarily recorded. 
And I would imagine those things were eye opening. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And um, he first findeth his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Now, let's look at what those uh, what those two words meant. Right. So let me get my concordance out if it stops acting crazy. OK, Messiah meant anointed. The Greek form Messiah meant anointed, the Greek form of Messiah. Right. And of course, it said being interpreted the Christ. Well, what does the Christ mean? The anointed. That's all that means. It's just a name that means not that is just a name. It is the name of, of all names, but it means the anointed. That was the significance of that. All right. So this was they knew this wasn't just this wasn't just anybody regular. This was the Messiah, the anointed one, the one prophesied to come. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said unto him, Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth unto Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip findeth Nathanael and said unto him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You notice a pattern. Every time one of them comes in contact with Jesus, this is so important that they tell somebody else who comes to the same realization that this is important and tell somebody else. Uh, and Nathaniel said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, Philip saith unto him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Now, if the Lord Jesus Christ said there was no guile in Nathanael and there was no guile, Nathanael saith unto him, whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi. Thou art, here it goes again, the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. They understood the significance of him being the son of God. And, and notice how he, the smallest thing, right? So the Lord Jesus Christ clearly knew everything saw everything and knew exactly where Nathaniel was before this interaction happened. And that shocked Nathaniel like, Oh, this is for real. He is for real. Uh, verse 50, Jesus answered and said unto him, because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree. Believest thou 
thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto them, unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, as prophesied in various Old Testament scriptures. So we see it here. We see everything laid out. We see the Lord Jesus Christ being portrayed. Uh, we see his 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 significance being portrayed in this first chapter of the book of John. And as I said before, I think this lays the groundwork for how you should see the gospel of John moving forward. Like how, how, how you should break these things out in your mind. What should you think about what's being said? I think a lot of that is greatly informed by what we see here in this first chapter and I think it would it would help you greatly before moving on, because I know it, it's it's definitely helped and is helping me to really understand what's going on in this first chapter, because even even in doing this, I'm mindful of things that I that I already know about the book, of, that, about the gospel of John. And it's making me think again about things that I read that I thought I understood, like, oh, Oh, this makes what happens later on makes so much more sense, man. I want to encourage everybody. If you don't make it a practice of reading your Bible and do it, there is definitely a lot more in here than, you know, and it's a lot more helpful to your life than you would ever imagine. Y'all know what it is. Stay frosty, people. <laughs>